Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to give you actionable ideas to elevate your current or perhaps your future nonprofit organization. Thanks for listening. If you're a current nonprofit leader or hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are on the cutting edge of our sector. And do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. I had a fantastic conversation this episode with Menchaya's RE, who's such a good example of a nonprofit leader who weaved together a diverse set of experiences, talent, and skills to help prepare him for his current position as president and CEO of one of the largest communities and schools affiliates in the United States. You'll enjoy this conversation for a number of reasons, as Menchias has done a remarkable job of thoughtfully preparing himself for senior leadership in the nonprofit sector. And we talk about how he came to the sector from outside. In fact, he worked for local government first and how he leveraged the value of working on the program side of nonprofit leadership, and how he specifically prepared for his latest role, getting ready, getting oriented once he arrived, and how he quickly engaged his team, his board, and key donors, all of which are topics I know you are thinking about in your current or perhaps your future nonprofit leadership role. Lots to unpack here, so make sure you check out the show notes after you listen to this episode. It's number 89. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Menchias and I discussed, as well as more information on the great work he's doing at communities and schools in Mecklenburg County. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list so you can get all of our free weekly resources and let us help your nonprofit maybe build its strategic plan, re-engage its board, or perhaps we can help you determine your next step toward nonprofit leadership through our coaching, training, or one of our mastermind programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Menchias R.E. Menchias, thank you for joining me on the path. Great. Thank you for having me, Pat, and glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk about what has been a fantastic nonprofit leadership journey for you. Um, as you know, Menchias, our listeners are in nonprofit leadership or aspiring to be there. And I'm eager to unpack you know, some of the decisions you made along the way, um, what you did, uh, how you evaluated uh, your journey uh, to get to the current position you're in, and and what are some of the things you're prioritizing right now in this kind of strange virtual environment uh, we're in. But before we get into all that, maybe start with what is Communities and Schools, and tell me about your role there. Sure. So Communities and Schools is a nationwide organization that really focuses on making sure that kids have everything that they need to succeed in school and in life. We are in 25 states. It's a national affiliate system. There's several of them here in Charlotte. We are the largest in Charlotte and one of the largest in the entire affiliate system. Uh, but think about communities and schools as being a professional adult in the schoolhouse 
whose job it is to advocate, to support, to make sure that the student has their basic needs met, interface with uh, other agencies, connect the child and their family to resources that they need. So when they get into the classroom, they are totally focused on learning. Uh, with all the things that are on the plate for teachers these days, uh, if the teacher sees someone in the corner who used to be very active and engaged, and now they're kind of sullen and they're not engaged, they don't have the time or the bandwidth to figure out what's going on. They refer them to one of our communities and schools site coordinators and we do the rest. I love that. And I, of course, the importance of education is only heightened now during this pandemic. And I can imagine that creates a whole new set of challenges for <laughs> you and your organization. I, I wonder how have you in general approached this? What I know you'd prefer to be in the schools literally, but I'm guessing you're having to adapt. Yeah, so we call ourselves CIS. And for all these years, the S and CIS stood for schools because we're in schools. <laughs> right. But today it seems like it's standing for screen because we're in Zoom meetings like everyone else is pretty much across the country. Wow. I think that the challenge, Patton, is that um, we've noticed that uh, many of the kids who used to be engaged to go to school, who were looking forward to school, who were even A and B students, they aren't thriving. Everyone just does not do well in the virtual environment. Right. You know, I'm often reminded of a, a mom or dad who's going off to work two hours before their child has to get up. And as much as I love school, if my mom or dad weren't there to get me out of bed, I'm not sure I would make it as frequently <laughs> as I did. And so uh, we're just seeing a number of challenges due to the pandemic, and we're hopeful that we get back in school soon. Well, I think uh, I share that sentiment, and I know you do. And again, it's remarkable the work you're doing despite the the challenges of being in person in the schools, as you said. And Menchai, I was going to ask you about you and I share, I think, an early morning routine, getting up early, getting things done. Is that among the things you have found that has helped you, um, you know, as a professional, the early morning routine, or is there anything else that has helped you maintain your productivity oh, during this uh, virtual time? I love time? that uh, question. And, and I tell you, uh, getting up early, I, I don't know why it took me so long to start it. You know, in, in reference, and I believe I, I got into the habit about 10 years or so ago, but it just seems, you know, before doing it, there just was not enough time to get things done. And then you get to work and there's meetings and there's email and there's interruptions that oftentimes I find that I get as much done uh, before I go into the office or log on uh, in that early morning time uh, than I would just in a normal span of time uh, or the regular workday. I also find that I, I think a lot clearer during that time period. And it also helps me do some of my own personal reading and some of the things that I'm working on as well. I think it's very important to be balanced to, you know, as you study and reflect on, um, you know, the technical parts of uh, your workplace and professional readings, that there's always a list of things that I want to keep apprised of and I get it done in the morning. Yeah, I'm a big fan with you and encourage our listeners to think about their routines. And I guess you and I have found that I think productivity is around energy and mental focus. And and I would agree that early morning is 
perhaps the height of that during our long days at work. But thank you for sharing that. And among other things that I know you'll share uh, with nonprofit leaders that are listening, let's let's go back to the early days, Menchai's. You um, talk about why you got into nonprofit work in the first place. <laughs> wow, that, that, that's a good question. It's something I reflected uh, on a, a number of times during my career. Uh, but I really think that it is uh, my parents, my family, my upbringing. Uh, so I, I grew up in uh, a family of folks who were dedicated to helping others. My, my dad worked for uh, the local fire department uh, at, for his entire career. I have a number of uncles who served on the police force. I have an uncle who was an executive director of a nonprofit. I have another uncle who actually ran energy assistance programming, which was very interesting because that was a pivotal part in my career. But uh, my mom was the type of mom who I didn't have the luxury of watching cartoons on Saturdays like other kids. We had to <laughs> right. get up and hop in the car. There was always someone that she wanted to help. And one of the earlier memories that I have is I was about you know six or seven years old and we used to take a blind neighbor shopping. My mom found it important to get her out of the house and get her engaged. And as time went on, I had the responsibility of navigating Miss Shepherd through the aisles. And uh, I really saw, um, I really, it, that just is a memory that stuck with me. And I, I really truly believe that the service to others is the rent that we pay uh, to live on earth, the uh, Muhammad Ali quote. Love that. Well, and again, thank you for the shout out to family members and folks that help us along our journey. And clearly, you were brought up in a family that believed in what nonprofits all about, right? Serving our communities. And, and I believe your early professional experiences were in government service. And I wonder if you could talk about that and maybe how that influenced the progression of your career that followed. Sure. So uh, I was a Spanish major in college. I, you know, I, I started out like most others, uh, I started out a business major and I had these aspirations of going and getting a corporate job and uh, an early internship in a major corporation back in Connecticut where I grew up. Uh, it kind of changed my trajectory. I didn't really like that environment as much as I thought I would. And I, I set out to do something else, but I really liked languages and I kept going with that degree. I figured it would take me somewhere. And uh, back in the early 90s, I, I came to uh, Mecklenburg County uh, in, here in Charlotte and I applied for an interpreter role. And um, to tell you how much things have changed, the HR representative told me that they had one interpreter already and they didn't need any more. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> exactly. It is hard to believe that. Uh, but I, they, I was encouraged to apply uh, for a role as a caseworker uh, because they thought that it would be prudent to have some, um, some bilingual caseworkers. And so I applied as a caseworker and I started out really providing public assistance, specifically food assistance. Back then they were calling it food stamps for uh, residents here in Charlotte. And 
as I got into providing direct services, I really got a bird's eye view of how big the need was and how, although I had maybe five or 600 people that I was responsible for helping, it didn't feel like I was doing enough. And I, from that moment on, I always was thinking, how can I scale my impact? I love that. And of course, you carried the spirit of your mother and your family upbringing, how to help people. But I guess now you became more aware of the scale of some of these issues, right? Not just your neighbor, (laughs) the individuals, which of course, all of the scale comments are related. They are still individuals, but is that what kind of led you even further down the programmatic path? It is what led me exactly down a programmatic path. So it was twofold. One, how to scale uh, the issue and the issues and the issue at that time primarily was poverty. Um, How to really, you know, poverty seemed like a simple problem to solve when you look at everything else we do when we put our mind to it. I mean, look at how quickly we were able to come up with a vaccine for uh, COVID-19 and you look at all of that we have that we're doing around technology, around, you know, space travel, you know, in my mind, you know, poverty was something simple and compared to all those things. So I really wanted to get into uh, looking at the underlying structures and some of the underlying and or root causes uh, for poverty and figure out how not only can we, I didn't see, Poverty is something to be alleviated. I saw it as something to be eradicated. What were some of your early impressions that you you joined an organization you and I both have a ton of respect for, Crisis Assistance Ministry? And uh, I guess that was a foray into nonprofit programming. What was that like compared to maybe working in a government-related, you know, caseworker environment? Yeah, so... (laughs) I remember this vividly. I went to visit the uh, executive director there, Carol Hardison, uh, the CEO. I have a lot of respect for her. I consider her a mentor. And she gave me a tour of crisis assistance. And they were, she was telling me about this construction project that they were going to launch. And I came back a month or so later and the construction was halfway complete. (laughs) And it just struck me the speed in which nonprofit can go when compared to uh, government assistance or government programs, right? Government has the funding, but the the bureaucracy and, you know, just the the level of uh, red tape and all of the things that that's required in terms of ensuring um, accountability, it sometimes slows the pace of work. And I was a lot younger than I am now. And, <laughs> and going faster was very alluring to me. That's good to hear. I, I think sometimes in nonprofits, we wonder why we're not moving faster. But I guess you were coming, it's all relative, right? Depending on where you come from. And well, when you jumped into that faster environment, uh, what skills and experiences did you find you needed or perhaps you just simply built on those you already had displayed earlier? Yeah, good question. So I think the skill set that was just immensely important and vital is as you progress in leadership. So when I left 
uh, the my my profession, my work at the government to go work in a nonprofit space. I left from being a supervisor, well, a mid-level manager to a senior manager. So I certainly needed to uh, delve quickly into more strategic thinking and strategic planning. And that is where uh, Carol and her team really, really uh, provided so much mentorship in that regard. Uh, but what I think carried me through and I think what was, uh, which caused uh, the organization to really look at me as a leader, is just the people skills, you know, developing the patience and uh, the, you know, the willingness to help that got nurtured and started when I was walking Miss Shepherd through the hallways. It goes uh, in the grocery store, it goes a long way uh, when you really have to help an employee or help a customer in need. It's just the empathy and the patience and really giving uh, people benefit of the doubt. I, I have another mentor. Um, one of the things that she tells me that I always live by, she says, to lead is to teach. And I saw that it just gave me a platform to really teach and to model and to really have an opportunity to scale some of the helping that I had uh, bred in me as I was growing up. Yeah, I love that. And again, your recognition of family, of mentors, the value there certainly is advice I know our listeners should be pondering and nice of you to lift yours up. And just those empathy, and I hate to use the phrase, the soft skills phrase, because I think it undermines the importance of them. But clearly, you were an early adopter of that. And let me ask you about something else that I know you evaluate a little bit later in the game, because we got listeners right now, Menchies, that are thinking, do I need a graduate degree? If I'm going to climb the ladder in nonprofit, you indeed pursued a graduate education. I wonder if you could talk about what was your kind of mental deliberation of, as to why you needed it and how did it pay off? Uh, that's that's a good question. And I'm, I'm glad you asked because it was something I really racked my brain with. And I really had talked myself out of the need to getting uh, a graduate degree. I had, um, you know, I made it at this point, I had left nonprofit, I had gone back to the government work that I left. Uh, and I had made it all the way to the deputy director role at the department level. Yeah, and I was saying, wow, you know, I, I, my years of experience are making up for the um, making up for my lack of degree. And so I felt good about that. I felt my experience was good. I was able to progress over the years. But then as I began to unpeel and unpack the depth and breadth of the challenges that we're having to face, you know, as I got older, I realized that uh, eradicating poverty was not so as easy as I thought. <laughs> right. <laughs> I started really looking at the complexity of challenges. You know, everyone's now more keen about some of the systemic issues around race and equity. Uh, you look at some of the challenges that we have around the environment. And uh, as I was a leader, what I realized is that I owed it to the people who put their trust in following me to make sure that I brought everything to the table to help tackle 
uh, some of these complex problems. In fact, you know, in, in the world of public administration, they're called wicked problems because they're so big and so multifaceted that you need collaborative skills, you need great finances and all kinds of things to really just begin to chip away at them. That's such a good point. And I, I'm glad you raised the point. I guess I'll circle back to it. it. While perhaps you did not need the credential of graduate education, you felt like though it was just in your best interest and to better serve these wicked problems, you felt like you needed, you know, or at least you wanted to pursue as much education as possible? I, I, that That's exactly it. But, you know, in retrospect, what they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. I did need the credential. I mean, I think that as you know, there, there was something a little strange and hypocritical that folks who were reporting to me had a requirement to have a master's degree and I did it, right? Right, <laughs> it was, right. Um, and so you start looking at that and then clearly I was not really wanting to stay. I, although I loved my job, I, I really had a lot of time in front of me as it related to my career. And I, I realized that in order for me to be as competitive as I needed to be in this space, I needed to get that degree. And I will tell you, a month after completing my studies, I got the role of president and CEO of Communities and Schools. And although I had plenty of experience under my belt, a master's degree was requisite. Wow. Well, good for you for having the foresight <laughs> to, again, <laughs> even if it wasn't absolutely required at the time you were looking ahead. And that's what, again, I know a lot of nonprofit or aspiring nonprofit leaders are considering. Let me ask you a question, though, as as you pondered um, that graduate degree, how did you evaluate what type of degree? And I think you were pretty thoughtful about literally what institution you might pursue given the geography that you were in in Charlotte. No, that's, that's, thank you for those questions. So uh, I really wanted to, I, I knew through my experience in government service and my experience in nonprofit service that I really wanted to be the best leader that I could be in that particular sector and space. And as many of your listeners are probably have probably experienced it's nothing like running to a leadership book. It's nothing like turning on a, a YouTube video and all of the references are from the public sector. And, um, and, and to be quite frank, uh, some of my friends and I have gotten into pretty heated arguments or debates, let me say, <laughs> uh, when it comes to uh, the private sector thinking that nonprofit work is sort of a step down. When they want to slow down, I'm going to go to the nonprofit world. And I often remind them that some of the major crises that the nonprofit sector has been charged with fixing, it was done at the hands of the folks in the private sector. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but I also really wanted to look, so I did choose uh, Maxwell School, uh, Syracuse's. A school of uh, public administration for a number of reasons. It was, uh, it is the oldest uh, MPA program in the country and it has been number one uh, for about the past 25 years. Uh, but secondly, it has, I wanted to make sure that not only did I have a regional perspective as I've 
uh, obtained clearly from living and, and working uh, in the Southeast. But I really wanted to make sure that I had an opportunity to look at and interface with individuals from across the country, professors uh, from an esteemed institution, as well as making sure that I did not just maintain a limited focus from a Southeast perspective, but I really wanted to look at these wicked problems from a, a national and or global perspective. And uh, Syracuse provided that for me. I think it's fantastic. And again, uh, you and I both certainly wouldn't discount someone con pondering uh, graduate education in their own community, but I'm fascinated and, and really appreciate the fact you said no. Um, you had a lot of experience in your local community and, and were intentional about getting outside of it to maybe expand your reach. And, but when, if it, maybe there wasn't a dramatic moment, but Menchai's, when did you know you wanted to be a nonprofit leader? You know, the CEO, um, was that something again, during your programming days that you're like, you know, eventually I feel like I could lead an organization. Wow. Good question. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say, um, Plenty of people who work for worked for me in local government. Plenty of people who worked for me in nonprofit came from uh, the Johnson C. Smith University. Came from UNCC. They're phenomenal institutions. Indeed. I, I want to make sure that <laughs> I put it out there. But but what I what I think you have to you have to really look at in your own trajectory. You have to think at what's going to challenge you. And what do you specifically need on your journey? And for me, I needed to get outside of the Southeast in terms of education. So to answer your question about being a CEO, um, in my role at Crisis Assistance Ministry, I had the opportunity to work so closely with the executive director. I actually shadowed her when she went and gave her pictures. You know, I was there in the strategic planning process. I went and spoke with major donors. I actually had the bird's eye view of what it meant to be as a CEO. In fact, I saw it at its height when we were responsible for providing assistance during the housing crisis. We're the only housing, uh, we were the primary housing rental utility assistance program in the community in the midst of a housing crisis. And those experiences led me to say, I don't want to be a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I did, not, I did not want to be one. Uh, I thought that I wanted to be a COO and just deal with programming. Right. And you, you'll probably find this very interesting. I really felt that I didn't want to get into the whole fundraising side of it. Right. I, I think thought, that does scare. <laughs> and forgive me for interrupting, but yeah, I, good people like you who are so intense about the programming. I wonder if fundraising is indeed the thing that just like, yeah, but I don't want to get into that side of the, the business. That is exactly what it was. I didn't want to get into it. I mean, when working in the government sector, uh, because of our tax vehicle, uh, funding for programming is, you know, for the most part, uh, a lot easier than finding funding for the nonprofit running programs in government, you just focused on the programs. And what I thought was in a nonprofit world, the CEO spent their entire time running, uh, raising funds. Um, but as time went on, uh, clearly I changed my mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I what I found is 
you absolutely have to find a cause that you're passionate about. You have to find a cause that you think about before, you know, during that 5 a.m. space, you give a little bit of time of trying to solve that particular problem. It's an organization or a cause that you will volunteer for, that you will give money out of your pocket for. And it just so happens that communities and schools, I, I was a volunteer and on a board of directors for three years. So uh, it was clearly uh, an organization and a cause that I felt extremely passionate about. And, and it made so much sense for me to do it. And, um, and that is what allowed me to, uh, to go ahead and be put my name in a hat to be the CEO. And I will tell you, um, you know, when I accepted the role, uh, that that whole fear slash, um, you know, a little bit of anxiety around the fundraising part, it didn't go away. Uh, but during my leadership journey, I have learned to lean into um, your fears and, and more importantly, to make sure that you set goals that causes the, the butterflies in your stomach and that causes a little bit of apprehension. Otherwise, you, you may undershoot um, a goal that will really pull out and bring to the forefront your true skills and ability. Uh, I love how you articulate that. And it, because I was going to ask you, you know, how did you get over the fear, so to speak? And clearly you have. And because fundraising is, is not ever, I think, totally a natural skill for any of us, even as someone who was a professional fundraiser for many years. But I think you said an important point. I guess it starts with just an absolute passion and a belief in the mission. And I guess, is that what you fall back on, Menchai, is that, all right, I don't necessarily like fundraising per se, but I believe in the cause that I'm representing in the community. Well, oddly enough, I do like fundraising. Oh, you've and come you've come full circle. <laughs> I have come full circle, Pat. And I, I like fundraising, but what I like and when I made the assessment, and I'm sure many of your listeners have done similarly, is you think fundraising is just about asking for money. It is just that ask. You're like, oh my gosh, how am I gonna go into this room and ask this organization for a million dollars? Right. And um, you know, the first month and a half on the job, I spent several hours a day calling donors, Zooming donors, introducing myself to them and just saying thank you. Now, I can imagine how many of your listeners out there would enjoy saying thank you. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And so, uh, you know, the stewardship part is something that I really have fallen in love with. And a, a, another nonprofit executive mentor gave me the best piece of advice around fundraising ever. And she said that um, I never, ever, ever go into uh, an ask, a meeting that I'm going to ask for money without letting the folks know that that's what I'm going to do. Interesting. Right, right. right. <laughs> and I said, that makes a ton of sense, right? And you say, hey, Pat, and you know, we have been working on increasing uh, student engagement because the pandemic has really decimated our attendance for a number of kids for a number of reasons. 
And we found this technology that will get them engaged. We're going to gamify how we connect kids. We're going to create a digital community of support and provide them incentives for logging on and getting over Zoom fatigue. I'd like to talk to you about this project in a little bit more detail and see if you not, might be able to help me uh, make this possible for the kids in this community. Wow. You know beforehand, it is, uh, you know, then you go in, you already know what we're going to talk about. There's no awkwardness. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the best gifts that I had given. And I had another mentor, uh, another executive director. She told me, Minchai, as I've seen you fundraise a hundred of times, all you do is you stand up and you tell a story. That is fundraising. Uh, Minchai, that is a masterclass. Thank you for sharing. And and I, what you're doing, uh, I'm delighted to hear, is you know demystifying, I think, what many perhaps that have not yet had the opportunity to lead an organization and fundraise for it, they're fearing things that you just broke down. And, and I'm glad you also suggest that let, let's don't do the dance. The donor knows why you're coming. And so you're upfront about it and you make the case. And, and to me, it's now about let's facilitate an investment this person likely wants to make and you're there just to help them make it. I, I, I'm looking forward to actually participating in um, uh, leadership gift schools so that I can really hone my skills. I think that given everything that we are facing right now, um, I definitely want to make sure that uh, me and my team really have everything and the most current information about fundraising in these uncertain times. Well, we're delighted to have you. And of course, you're referring to Leadership Gift School, which is something I put in our show notes for organizations that are pondering both how to be more comfortable in the major gift ask in particular, and how to to better support the team dynamic of the CEO and the chief development officer. And so again, delighted that you're going to be part of that. Um, thank you again for sharing some of these fundraising nuances that I know are on the mind of nonprofit leaders. Um, let me ask you this. Now that you, you had prepared yourself so well on this journey to senior leadership in the sector, any surprises at what you've been, you've been in the new role a couple months now. Talk about that. What literally surprised you once you got in the job? Wow. So <laughs> great question. I can't say that COVID surprised me because <laughs> right. I, I started and I onboarded uh, during COVID, but I think my words have come to haunt me really fast. I, I remember sharing that when I was at Crisis Assistance Ministry, we were responsible for providing rental and utility assistance in the midst of the housing crisis. And I used to go along my career saying, I had to help people during the housing crisis. We saw 100, 200% increase in demand everything goes up from here, right? So I used to say that, but the pandemic has definitely um, trumped uh, the, the experience that we faced during um, the housing crisis. But what I will say, uh, the thing that has surprised me most is just how much and how many demands of your time there are. And really? yes, just calendaring and um, just, you know, double, triple booking. And I have really been so fastidious about organizing our time and meeting hygiene and all of these other types of techniques 
to make sure that I maintain a bandwidth to do this work and do it effectively. I'm so glad you bring that up because I do think uh, many nonprofit leaders get buried in their calendar, don't they? And it sounds like you have to literally step back and, or let me ask you that. How do you assure that your calendar allows you to do the most important work you need to do? Well, uh, what you know three months in i woke up and i realized that i have a major role to play in setting the culture of the organization right. i'll never forget a couple of weeks ago it was uh, i had a great refreshing weekend and i i, I looked you know right around at five o'clock 6 a.m i'm looking at my calendar for the week refreshing it haven't looked at it uh, over the weekend just briefly and i immediately felt stressed I'm like, oh my gosh, this bumper to bumper to bumper meeting. When am I going to be able to do all these other things? Right. And what I did is I really am in the process of creating a culture in which we value time and you hire the brightest minds to be on your team and their genius is eroded because they run from meeting to meeting and they're always reactionary and they are not able to reflect and ponder and really put the brain power to solving some of these big issues that that's needed. And so what we are doing is we are being deliberate about what meetings we have. We do not have a meeting without questioning what is the what is the intended outcome from this meeting. Love that. If, if something can be done via uh, email, we do email. There's explicit preparatory work that's done before meetings so that uh, we maximize the time. We're starting to institute a timekeeper in our meeting. So I, I, I've spent a lot of time in Toastmasters the past couple of years and many of the techniques that Toastmasters uh, members take for granted, uh, they really could just change and make meetings so much more efficiently. And Wednesdays, right? Wednesday afternoon, I block off a couple of hours just for desk time. And that time is sacrosanct. And I mean, unless someone major comes and asks for that space, that is the time I know that I can catch up on anything that I may have missed on Monday and Tuesday and or prepare for something for the latter part of the week. And that time is there. And it just makes a big difference. Yep, gold mine. Menchias, gold mine there. Thank you. I hope every listener considers um, their meeting hygiene, to use your phrase, and, and their meeting dynamics, um, because I think too often we just simply fall victim to the calendar and to our meeting routines. Now, of course, not everyone has the leadership ability to influence that you do, but I bet a lot of organizations, regardless of where you are on the you know hierarchy, you could make an impact on better meetings because. Um, you're just going to get the right work done. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to be buried in unnecessary meetings, perhaps. Yeah, and, and it's nothing worse. We've all done it. You're in a meeting and the folks are on Zoom and they're not paying attention because they're doing emails that they didn't get a chance to do. Exactly and people right. People are calling meetings because they couldn't read an email and they rather just ask you to tell them in person. And it goes from... Uh, from bad to worse. And, <laughs> and then, and, and since we've been in this remote environment for nearly a year now, uh, the, the space that you used to have to reflect and commute time is gone. And so if you do not guard your time, 
there will be less reflection. And I think there's going to be long-term ramifications for leaders not being able to reflect and really give some contemplated time to these big issues. So well put. And, and I hope it is a takeaway that a uh, listener will ponder with uh, all seriousness. Let me also give a shout out, though, to your current employer, Communities and Schools. As you mentioned in a previous conversation, they've done a really neat job of helping you hit the ground running. And I wonder if you could speak to some of the things they did in the first 60 days or so that might be lessons for other nonprofits who are welcoming a new leader. Wow. Yeah, I, I really have a lot of respect for uh, the team there. I, I'm really fortunate to, to be able to get up every day and work with some fantastic individuals, some folks who are dedicated and, and really spend a vast amount of their time really trying to help kids in this community get a fair shot. Uh, when I think about the preparation that I had, um, fortunately, I had a little bit of crossover time and it was something that I thought was very important. During my lunch breaks at my uh, former job, I would I scheduled one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with my uh, executive team, my direct reports. I thought it was very important that I got a chance to meet with them, to hear their issues, to hear their concerns, to, to learn um, uh, more about them as individuals, as well as to hear some of their ideals and hopes. It was great to be able to do that before I actually started uh, working at communities and schools. I had a chance to audit a meeting or two, particularly one of the all hands meetings where everyone was there. I wasn't there, you know, I didn't have the mic there, but I was there as an observer and really got a chance to, to get a pulse of the culture that I was going to become a part of and also be responsible for influencing. Nice. I think I think most important, Patton, was there was a really complete list of people I needed to meet both internally, externally, major donors I needed to call, foundations I needed to speak to. And it was laid out, you know, these folks get to speak the first day, these folks the first week, these folks the first month. And it has been something that was very, very, very uh, beneficial. It just took all of the mystery out of it. And I, I will end by saying, on my very first day uh, on the job, my very first meeting, I had the luxury of speaking with the founder of Communities and Schools. He's in his 80s and he is still passionate about this work to this day. I love that. And again, the foresight by leadership, even before you arrived, to help you succeed. Because I just worry sometimes, Menchai's, that nonprofit leaders are kind of parachuted in, <laughs> you know, yes. to a battle zone uh, yes. of, of activity. And then no wonder they they sometimes struggle to get their footing. But someone, your your leadership board and staff literally helped you outline, because I remember you said something about even some of the key donors, right? They literally laid out, all right, talk to these people early in the game, which sounds to me like it really helped you hit the ground running. It, it really did. It really helped me. It, you know, I also made it a point to have meetings with my team. It's nothing like trying to onboard and in the middle of a virtual workspace. I left one virtual work environment to the other to go to another. And I had, uh, we would have virtual chat and choose. People would come bring their lunch and we'd sit down and we'd just talk and get to know each other. And, and I think those things were, were indispensable, but getting a chance just to introduce myself 
to the major donors and stakeholders of communities and schools has been beneficial. I, I will also say uh, something that I have been pleasantly surprised about because my prior nonprofit experience didn't have this, but uh, just being able to also lean on the support provided by our state communities and schools office and our national office, they have provided a plethora of materials and support activities to, to really kind of continue uh, my onboarding experience. Well, good for you for taking advantage of that network that is indeed built into the communities and schools uh, community, right? Literally across the country. Um, and again, fascinated by your approach early on to meeting dynamics and some of the internal staff mechanics. Let me ask you about the board. How, what is your approach? Again, as you look forward, you've got a very talented board of directors, but I wonder in the early days here, what are your thoughts about kind of engaging the board in the most effective way? Yeah, so I, I have served on a number of boards. I've worked at nonprofits and worked with those boards. And I will tell you, the board of directors at communities and schools is top notch. Uh, you know, their dedication, their passion for the work is unparalleled. And, and what I have found is, A, they were peers of mine at one point. So it did, it definitely helped to get to know them on a personal level first. Um, but what my approach to my board is, um, I, I really have embraced transparency. I embrace transparency about some of the issues that we're facing, some of the challenges that are brought on by the pandemic. And I don't feel obligated to have everything solved before I share with them. Interesting. Right. I share with, I took a risk early on. I said, look, I'm going to share this with you without all of the solutions worked out, but I'm going to trust you all to trust me and my team to provide the solutions and we'll give you an update. And if it doesn't go so well, then maybe I'll take another approach uh, the next go around. And it worked out so great. You know, I think that when you have leaders who want to help you and they want to help more than just their financial contribution, they want to be thought partners. Uh, I think it would be folly not to take advantage of that. And so I um, approach my board of directors as thought partners. I also make sure it's really clear that uh, you, that they hired me and um, my team to deal with the day-to-day -day. and it's really important that they stay and provide uh, the thought power and support at the strategic level and i think as long as we maintain those uh those fundamental understandings uh, the relationship has really been phenomenal yeah it's fantastic and uh, kudos to you for approaching it that way with transparency and uh, i'm sure they have responded well um even when the news is not always good right as the executive yes. director but you've set the tone for an open communication uh, which i know will pay off speaking of looking ahead menchais talk about strategic planning and the difficulties i guess right now of looking ahead in an uncertain environment but i know you are strategic planning and i wonder if you could speak to kind of how you're approaching that process Sure. So we, um, I, I was fortunate in that being on a board of directors, I got a chance to, to participate in the, the previous strategic plan and our current run. And our current plan, we are actually in year one of a three-year plan. 
Uh, but like most other organizations, when we were doing all of the heavy lifting around brainstorming and strategizing, we had no idea that COVID-19 was around the corner. And so it, I think it's important for organizations to refresh their strategies in light of the realities that are presented by the pandemic. And uh, I think in my right before we broke for the holidays, uh, the uh, executive team and I went out for a re retreat. One of my first asks of them was to get with their individual teams and do a SWOT analysis of their areas. And so they met with the, the vice presidents of all of the different departments, met with their teams, their managers, their frontline staff, and they did a SWOT analysis. And then when we, we got together in a retreat as the executive team, and we presented that SWAT to each other. Uh, so you imagine, you know, eight VPs, uh, the first ask was, you all, this cannot be boring. And B, you have to make sure that you narrow down each quadrant to no more than five things because you nice. start multiplying that, it just becomes too much information. Right, right. And I'll tell you, on we had our all hands meeting uh, the first of, uh, well, the latter part, just last week. And uh, we presented the SWOT analysis to the team and they really thought it was spot on. Uh, but then what we're doing is we're overlaying the insights from the SWOT, which basically gave us a snapshot of our current state. And we are now refreshing our goals and our, you know, our objectives, uh, given the, the strategic plan in the SWOT. And uh, after I get off of this interview, I'm actually meeting with one of um, the managers uh, in my area, one of my VPs, and we're actually going to begin looking at goals for the next six months. So we really are taking smaller bites of our planning process because there's so much uncertainty, um, but having the SWAT, having the strategic plan, having a really responsive and innovative team uh, makes strategic planning uh, really work, even in these unprecedented times. Well put. And I love the fact that you maintain a framework of a longer term plan, but you've overlaid this SWAT uh, activity, which kind of re-engages everybody in the process, doesn't it, in their yes. area and then how it's going to interface with everybody else. And so yes. it is clear to me, Menchais, that you will be successful and you've offered our listeners so many good uh, elements of uh, advice and things for them to ponder in their own leadership. And so any final advice that you might offer someone who's like, all right, I'm thinking about following you down this path. Uh, what advice would you offer them? Well, I, I, I mentioned it several times and, and Pat, and thank you for having me. Uh, it has been great to, to talk with you. I have a, a lot of respect for the work that you do in our community and, and your dedication to providing support uh, to leaders. I think that there's a couple of key things that I will offer. Um, you know, it's something I tell my children and it's something I tell my team that leaders are readers and it's important to really read. Uh, I think uh, one of the biggest impediments to success of uh, anyone and especially leaders is really not thinking big enough and having someone to challenge your way of thought. We grow up and our, our society now is such that people can easily surround themselves with people who look like them, who talk like them, and who will support their good habits and their bad habits. And I think it's very important to be diligent and intentional 
about surrounding yourself by people of all walks of life who will challenge you and push you to grow and most specifically will challenge your way of thinking. I talked about mentorship. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Oprah Winfrey and all that she's been able to accomplish. And I was stunned one day when she talked about that she had five mentors and they each provided her guidance in certain subscribed areas of her life, uh, finances, health, spirituality, et cetera. So if Oprah, uh, one of the few billionaires out there. <laughs> she <laughs> needs need mentors, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, um, and I think it's also just really important, Pat, and I'll end here in making sure that you, um, you really curate um, the things that you let into your space. Uh, there is uh, there's a competition for your attention and it's so easy to get lost into, uh, you know, a, a social media feed or, you know, watching a million shows on, on uh, Netflix or some other stream media. Right. Uh, but I think it's important that you really guard your time. Uh, you don't get your time back. And um, just as investments have a compound effect uh so do uh, good habits and I, I think it's really important that you uh take that into your own hands fantastic thank you for finishing with those words of wisdom they are a perfect uh summation of all the good things you've shared if i could ask one more parting gift manchias for our listeners maybe it uh, would be a book might there be a book you'd recommend that has been meaningful to you that would be one we could recommend to our listeners Sure, sure. One of my favorites, it's kind of hard to pick a, a good book, but one of my favorites is uh, The Magic of Thinking Big. And it, it just really, once again, talks about how important it is to scale your thoughts and scale your approach and, and not let your thoughts um, limit your actions. And, um, and so I, I really love that book uh, by David Schwartz. Um, I'd also uh, give out the importance of uh, making sure that people kind of update their task list. I, I, they call it personal productivity software. I'm a big fan of Evernote and Todoist and OneNote and really utilize those tools to help declutter my thinking. Uh, any idea, any concept, any thought, I put it in there and it's categorized and it's put it away. And it allows your mind to free itself uh, to be creative and to, to work on some of those wicked problems that we all have to play a role in solving. Great. Thank you for bonus material, Manchias. Not just a single book, but uh, some uh, other organizational and productivity tips and tools. I'm a big fan of Evernote myself, and so delighted to hear you are a user as well. So this has been wonderful. Thank you for all of your insight and advice and for sharing your journey. And I guess, where can people find out more about the great work you're doing? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, please uh, visit our, our website, uh, Communities and Schools uh, Charlotte. We uh, have a phenomenal team who, who keeps that up and it really highlights the work that we're doing and, and some of the challenges that we're facing. Um, also, we have uh, some uh, social media, Communities and Schools has an Instagram page, et cetera. Uh, and folks who want to get in contact with me can reach out to me on uh, my Instagram page. Fantastic. And Chais, thank you again for joining me on the path. All right. Thank you. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Menchias as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and perhaps enhance your organization's strategy right now. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Menchias and the great work he's doing at communities and schools here in Charlotte. And check out some of the resources that he lifted up. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. You know, if you like this episode about leadership in the education and early childhood space, you ought to check out Devlin McNeil, episode number 48, and she discusses nonprofit leadership at her organization called Arts Plus. Or check out Sabrina Dawson, episode number 66, and learn more about the great work she's doing at the Collective Blueprint in Memphis. Well, once again, thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.